Episode 3. Are we starting? Yeah. Oh, okay. That was just starting. Oh, uh, hey, yeah, this is episode 3. Welcome. Alright. Hello and welcome, everybody. Um, yeah, I hope you've been enjoying the last couple of episodes. And in this episode, it is my turn to do the slightly heavier topic. I will say, I was told to give warnings by certain mothers mm. i.e. my mother mm -hmm. if it's going to be too scary okay because she doesn't want to listen to it oh and also for the young ears that listen as well mm -hmm. i can't remember all of the details of this one mm -hmm. but i do think it's quite gory okay so anyway I well i mean i think it'd be safe to say that uh like 95 percent of our content is for adults yeah yeah and that doesn't mean that necessarily kids are gonna stop like you know not yeah. find a way to listen this is just our warning yeah yeah for sure so just know most of our stuff is yep. for adults all right so this week's topic i'm going to try and tackle some true crime and i hope that i don't butcher it okay like you won't you won't <laughs> you won't butcher it go in with positive that, attitude, with that, positive uh, attitude. Yes, yes yes right like i said or like we said at the beginning of this um uh, in episode one we're gonna try and make it as much give as much variety as we can so hence why we're doing true crime this week but i actually found this while researching a spooky story last week mm -hmm. uh, or the week before i can't remember anyway let's start off by admiring this dude's beautiful mugshot okay. this is victor lakata the marijuana maniac and that's marijuana with a h Okay. Or H, for all you American listeners. So this murder spiked or sparked a huge controversy. There's all sorts of what you might call conspiracy theories about what actually happened that night. You know what happened afterwards. All this. I just tried to get as many facts as I could about the story because mm -hmm. there's so much, so many conspiracy theories out there now. It's very hard to decipher what is actual fact and what's not the main people who are to blame is the media and the police even though this was 1933 the reason why he got called the marijuana maniac it's, it's got like and it, we'll get into it you'll find out okay so i'm gonna post this picture on the instagram because god love him he, do, he just looks insane yeah he does like he looks batshit he looks ready for anything yeah mm -hmm. and so this was posted in the papers anyway the most heinous crime of 1933 victor lakata tampa florida on october 17th 1933 while under the influence of marijuana murdered his mother father sister and two brothers with an axe while they were asleep that's how i imagined it was typed the with an X is in all capitals anyway. You know, I've heard um, some testimonies, like uh, recorded testimonies from people of that time, and they did—they really did talk like that. Yeah, it, it seems really wonderful. Did. Everything was just a little bit more dramatic. Yeah. Um, and like I said, it was really sensationalized, so I'm assuming all of the reporters and journalists had that in mind. Mm. My sources this week are nydailynews.com 
the ukcia.org. Right, now this is a cannabis internet activist. That's what the CIA stands for in that. He does all the research for refermadnessmuseum.org, who has a quote-unquote bu- pu- book published on the subject, which I did actually use for visual reference, and I really wanted to get more facts out of it, but there were so many spelling mistakes that I just couldn't, and, and like just strange grammar, I couldn't take the book seriously. The, the, again, it's, it's not really a book, it's an online PDF, very short. But they did put a lot of work into it, so credit where credit's due. I also found a really small, growing YouTube channel called Out of the Past. It's just one girl. She does, like, past murder cases. Mm-hmm. Very good. We're, we're going to binge watch her later on. Um, her video views are still only in the hundreds. Mm-hmm. She's only been going for the last year. Mm-hmm. Very, really very good. informative. Yeah, she's nice. re- really cool. Anyway, the nicknames given, again, by the media... To this poor guy. The Dark Prince of Reefa Madness. Wow. Kid with the Axe. Marijuana Fiend. Dream Slayer. Kid with the Axe. Yeah. That, I mean. That's my favorite. The fucking Kid with the Axe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, alright, I'm going to go in with the actual murder. What happened? Again, if, if anybody else has read more on this and knows more or different facts than me, these are the facts that I found that didn't include just craziness. Anyway, October 17th, 1933, 11.45 a.m. Neighbors of the Lakata family notify police when they notice that nobody is up and about. Very nosy neighbors, but it is 1933. Two of the, local fam- or two of the family children should have been in school and Mr. Lakata himself ran two local barber shops so they were all early risers. Mr. Lakata clearly was, you know, a, a, what's the word? Prosperous member of the, of the community. You know what I mean? If a you, pillar of the community. You know, a pillar of the community, as they say. <laughs> if he had two shops, which he usually uh, went between, like, e- each day. Mm-hmm. Nice. Anyway, so, so they called the police. Mm-hmm. They had actually heard some of the neighbors report hearing sounds the night before, but didn't investigate that, you know, whatever. When the police entered the house... Uh, through a window because all the doors were locked they find five bodies the father Michael who was 47 the mother Rosalia 44 daughter Providence 22 and two sons Philip 14 and Jose 8 in the three bedrooms of the house the father looked like he had been in you know like the father was like wedged between the bed and the wall and the bed was like you know had moved like there was a struggle then they found Victor cowering in fear in the bathroom mumbling to himself there's different reports some reports say he was where he was only wearing a pair of underwear that were soaked in blood and he was covered in blood and he was just sitting mumbling to himself in the bathroom I, I saw this in multiple places was that he was actually fully dressed in like pressed trousers a clean white shirt but his skin was stained with blood still that was, like that, that uh, to me was kind of freaky, you know what I mean? Just this mumbling, blood-covered person. When I saw those eyes as well. So anyway, initially he denied killing anyone. The the officers, when they did find him, they were like, you know, you, what did you do? You, you killed your whole family. And he was like, what? Like, that no, that wasn't me. And then they asked him again in the car, and he, he said no. So 
Anyway, here's some background on this. Again, as factual as I can find. Lakada was the ne'er-do-well son of a prosperous Italian family. His father owned the two barber shops, which we said, and was apparently, and the father was apparently well liked and respected in the community. Victor, though, was unstable, a wild-eyed youth, so crazy that his neighbors and family lived in fear of him. A year earlier, police had tried to enforce a lunacy petition to lock him up. His parents begged to keep him at home, insisting they could give him better care than an institution could provide. A psychiatrist diagnosed dementia precox, now called schizophrenia. This is not totally accurate, but it's a commonly a, a common term that's like bundled in with schizophrenia now. Like obviously, in the last hundred years, we've come leaps and bounds in mental health. And I can't blame his family for not wanting to put him in an institution in 1933. Yeah. So anyway, he had apparently shown signs of mental decline within the last six to seven months. Which, when the police tried to pin the marijuana madness, I keep it was spelled marijuana with a H. I've never seen that before. The whole time I was uh, researching this, every single thing spelled it with a H. And then today, everywhere I've been seeing marijuana with a H. I find it strange. Anyway, he began to show signs of mental decline within the last six to seven months, which police said was due to his addiction to marijuana cigarettes. But Dr. H. Mason Smith, a prominent psychiatrist and former superintendent of the state hospital for uh, state hospital for the insane, did observe and diagnose him as legally insane, and there is no mention of marijuana or alcoholism in his hospital records. Also, his younger brother, I later found out, had been diagnosed with the same condition. I'm assuming the 14-year-old. It appeared to be in his genes. Four paternal relatives, an uncle, two cousins, and one of the brothers he killed, were insane. That's the terminology that they used in 1933. Not very appropriate, but anyway. Schizophrenia has been said to run in genes. Uh, not run in denim. <laughs> but, you better go catch them. Yeah. I, <laughs> so it's supposed to be hereditary. <laughs> um Anyway, like that, he, he did show signs of um, mental decline leading up to this. Anyway, like, and to the point where obviously it was noticeable to not only the family, but just people in general. So the night before all this happened, he had a dream. In this dream, Big Mike the barber, his dad, held him tight against the wall of their home and laughed and sneered at his futile struggles to get free. His mother hurried in from the kitchen with a huge carving knife in her hand and jeered and taunted and mocked him as he fought his father's iron grip. They then proceeded to sever his arms at the elbows and replace them with a pair of wooden arms that had iron claws at the ends. All the while his three siblings stood in the background laughing. That's not a... That's a freaky dream. Yeah, it is. That's actually... I read that before I researched any of this. Mm -hmm. And there's more. So this is a quote from the Tampa Times. But as far as I'm aware, he never actually spoke directly to a journalist. And the doctor said he was almost mute all of the time. Or mute almost all of the time. So... I'm not sure where they really got this quote from. If they really got the quote. But... It doesn't help his case anyway. So 
Here we go. Me? Kill my sister? My mother? Man, you're crazy. I never killed anybody. I hit them with an axe and knocked off every motherfucker. That was... <laughs> every motherfucker that was in there. My uncle and some old woman. And then two other men and two other women. Six there were, not five. I hit them with an axe like this. Whomp, whomp, whomp. I knocked them all off, but I didn't kill them. Why didn't they let me out of here? I go to the door and they shove me back. I shake on the gates and they won't move. I'm the strongest man in the world, but the gates won't move. My arms, see? They're not made of wood. They're the strongest arms in the world, but the gates won't move. My arms are strong, but they didn't kill anybody. They didn't hit anybody or hurt anybody. I had a pain in my stomach. I went to the kitchen and got a drink of water and took the bottle with me somewhere. The axe. It was on the back porch. I took it in and I set it down in the fireplace. It was a funny axe. When I picked it up and wrung it out, real blood came out. Not paint, not red ink. My stomach hurt. So that that's the quote, supposedly from Victor himself. Uh-huh. Which is just the most insane thing I've ever read. Like Yeah. It's hard to follow. I mean, yeah, you could just get... It's like a really good glimpse of what is going on in his head. The disarray yeah. of it all. You know what it is? It's the reaver. <laughs> Those marijuana cigarettes. <laughs> um, so anyway, this is these are quotes from that uh, psychiatrist, Dr. Smith. His actual report was published. And they are... This is one... As a child, Victor was always frail, sensitive, and somewhat seclusive in his makeup. So I imagine he was just a small, quiet kid, you know? Um, According to his cell observations, his mind had slowed down, and there has been. His mind has slowed down, and there has been a loss of spontaneity. He could not do anything consecutively. He is very negative, and at times entirely mute. He declines to respond to any questions, and when responses are obtained, they are delayed and in monosyllables, or in as few words as possible. He is awkward, indifferent to his surroundings, untidy in his appearance, and at times displays fear and asks if he is going to be murdered. I mean, other than the displaying fear and asking if he was going to be murdered, this could be Kevin from The Office. You know? (laughs) Why use many words when we can use one word? (laughs) But yeah, like nothing like too crazy or anything. So he inquires about Count Dorsey, who I'll admit I meant to Google and see who he is. No idea. I'm sure he was a big celebrity at the time. Count Dorsey and Christopher Columbus in a loud tone of voice. So I'm guessing he's just like sitting there, totally quiet in a cell. And then he's like, hey, what's going on with Count Dorsey? Or like... What's up with Christopher Columbus? And then goes quiet and mute again for days on end. He calls for food, but does not eat. This sounds like a like a poem. Again, it's just the way they spoke in 1933. Uh, once or twice he ate a small amount. Sorry. Uh, when the attendant ate some. He requested a shave, but refused to be shaved. I was Okay. When first put in jail, he was in a state of excitement and battered his head so much on the wall that he had to be put in a padded cell. So I'm thinking maybe that's when he started giving out this crazy quote. Victor does not appreciate his station in jail, which I don't think anyone really does. Uh, He has no idea of what is going to happen and is not interested in what happens in the future. He demonstrates no emotions about his status or deed. 
He has admitted several times to slaying his family, but says he does not know why. States he is sorry he killed his family, but registers no grief and shows no sorrow in his emotions. And this was just like another lone quote. He has never shed a tear. <laughs> Which I was like, Jesus Christ. So I looked up Count Dorsey, and I think it might be Alfred Dorsey, who's a French artist, but he died in 1852. And he was an amateur artist, so I don't... I mean, unless he was into hardcore art, I don't... Uh, like, how would he know the name? You know? No idea. Weird. So anyway, he's wondering what, what he's up to. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, he's dead. <laughs> so then, th- this is just a tiny bit about Rifa Madness. Uh, Lakata was quickly judged insane, rightfully so in my opinion, mm-hmm. and sent off to the state hospital at Chattahoochee. Mm-hmm. They they figured like if they had to just let him let like let him be in terms of like send him off to the insane asylum and just forget about him like they did with everybody else back then. Literally everyone, yeah. Yeah, it would have just faded into into obscurity. We probably wouldn't have been talking about him today. But his story captured the eye of Harry J. Anslinger or Anslinger. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. I've heard both. Uh, the first head of federal narco- of the Federal Narcotics Bureau, which later evolved into the DEA. So this guy is the ultimate fucking narc. Yeah. And he's a dick. Yeah, I mean, he just like yeah, he's probably an extremist. Is like, oh, what? Um, something I can like just fucking take and run with. And exactly. Make my make a name for myself and spread false information. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> this dude was kind of doing a good job. Like in the years leading up to this, again, I did, tried to knock out like that Reefer Madness Museum. If you want to know more about this, that is literally dedicated to like slut shaming this guy. Th- there's so much, like so much. Yeah. But anyway, he was trying to like clean up the streets, get rid of all uh, cocaine and heroin use, which mm. you know, fair enough. Back in the day, that like that was rampant. Like they they just removed cocaine from like you know, everyday products, like, in the last 20 years. Uh-huh. And heroin's never a good idea. But um, when he realized how many people were, like, just casually using marijuana with a H, he was like, I'm going to fuck up these people. Like, nobody's having a good time. Yeah. Basically. So, anyway, he saw this and he ran with it. Mm-hmm. The police said that Victor was addicted to the reefer. His addiction had begun six to seven months ago, which just happened to be around the same time when his mental illness started to really protrude in like everyday living. And they said that that's when he started smoking marijuana cigarettes, which again is funny. Now, there are reports of the family running a like bootleg moonshine operation from the house. And some people say it's because his father wasn't actually a wealthy man. And the area where he was living, you know, was quite prosperous and stuff. And they, they were calling out the family, saying like they were they weren't good enough. Like that's literally how these um, things were read. And one of them was from very modern times in uh, Tampa Bay times. Like this article was in the last couple of years. The dude who is currently living in this house is trying to get famous for something because I've seen him in three separate articles now over three separate things to do with this murder. 
He's like, oh, I live in the murder house. Mm. He found like pulleys in the attic. And he's like, see, this is where they could clearly pull moonshine into the attic. He's like Zach Bagginsing. Jesus. His own house. Yeah. Um, anyway. And Connecting dots where there aren't any. Yeah. And the whole like, oh, this guy couldn't afford to live here because he was only a barber. This was a hundred years ago, dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you don't have to be... Yeah. Whatever you are, like some CEO to live in that house. And also, he was a barber in a town where he owned two barber shops. So I'm sure he was doing quite well for himself, Yeah, you know? it's like, okay, he... Yeah, maybe not... Maybe not for one barber shop, but he had two. Yeah, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, how many barber shops does a man need before... <laughs> You for your approval yeah, to you live know. in this fucking house exactly <laughs> bitch <laughs> I didn't put his name in because I didn't want to you know. <laughs> but anyway I don't know about the family being involved but there's quite a few reports of Victor being involved in the delivery of Moonshine okay um, which is actually where he was supposedly again on that night I know he has admitted or did admit to this in 1933 he said he had been out delivering moonshine the night before, sitting in the back of the truck, just like kind of getting getting a, you know, getting a buzz on. All right. But it's straight uncut moonshine, <laughs> so it could explain the dream. Yeah. You know, like the hallucinations yeah, yeah, yeah. and shit like that. Could also explain why he decided to hack his family to pieces with a fucking axe. Or a mixture of his mental health and. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um. Which is actually my next uh, point on here. He was suffering with major mental illness. So whether he was smoking weed, drinking moonshine, that's all fine in small doses separately. But when it's all combined, you know. Yeah. Anyway, he was just a prime example by Ainslinger in just the worst way. And his propaganda led to the criminalization of the reefer. The weed with roots to hell. Mm. Literally, like, the the propaganda is hilarious. It's like, you know, your kids are smoking their way to hell. Like, <laughs> just everything was leading back to hell and, like, gonna, like they were going to lose jobs. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, uh, the demonization, uh, demonization, um, you know, making marijuana seem evil, um coincides with the um the uh tobacco companies i mean that's a, the tobacco company's direct competitor oh yeah 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 so if i own like marlboro or newport or whatever it is mm-hmm. and i want to take out my my competitor by running with this propaganda i'm going to line your pockets so you yeah, can continue yeah. to run with it. It's like, no, that is definitely the devil's cabbage. Yeah, so I don't think it's just his, oh, it wants to clean up the streets. Not fuck that, man. Oh, You're no, getting your pockets lined. Yeah, yeah. He was making fuck a fortune. You. Which is ironic because now the tobacco companies are paying to get into the weed business. But anyway, we're not getting into that. <laughs> Everything just makes me angry. Yeah, fuck it. <laughs> fuck it all. Like fuck everything. the government. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... All of this has now gone on to provide countless cover-up and conspiracy stories ranging anywhere from the KKK to, like, the Italian Mafia. I just wanted to try and give you the amount of actual facts as much as I could. It's a badass story, regardless. Like, that dream 
and just his rambling and the picture which you will all see the day this goes up and if you watch us on youtube I'll, I'll have pictures on there but anyway that's not the end of the story okay now i left Inslinger and I was like it was literally making me so angry that I just yeah. had to stop research and, I I was was like, like, Jesus and then Christ. the KKK again I was like these motherfuckers are in yeah. all was, these little pockets I was like oh like when you started talking about the DEA I'm like, like okay so it's gonna be one of these episodes where <laughs> the ones that I avoid because they just make me so angry <laughs> yeah yeah oh by the way this is a four hour episode <laughs> no but anyway so he he get got sent to uh, Chattahoochee Mm-hmm. which is in Florida all this happened in Florida so Licata remained in the mental hospital Chattahoochee until 1945 when on October 4th he and four other inmates sawed the bars off their cages and vanished fair play to them mm. so none of the guards heard anything nobody saw anything nobody knows where they got the hacksaw from nothing they reckon it was an inside job maybe the, one of the guards really liked Victor and was like here have a hacksaw go nuts I mean I'm surprised he didn't cut up the guard yeah you know like I wouldn't give him a sharp object anyway four of his fellow fugitives were picked up within days but Lakadam remained free for five years five years Uh, then in August of 1950 he just strolled into the waterfront restaurant in New Orleans owned by his cousin Phil Lakada Philip he was 35 so he like just straight up ballsy like just walked right in and was like hey man remember me and uh like so th- this guy wasn't happy like Lakata supposedly had vowed to murder more family members if he ever got out he's out you're his family member this is your restaurant and he just strolls on in very Michael Myers yeah like that's exactly like the whole time I was reading this I was like what the fuck <laughs> um Anyway, so Philip wasn't exactly happy to see his long-lost relative. This is a quote from uh, Philip Lakata. I was afraid of him, all right. The way you'd be afraid of any crazy man, Philip told a reporter. Why even include that as a quote? <laughs> the guy seems like full of insight. Man, a few words. But anyway, uh, he fed his cousin and invited him to visit again. So he's like, oh, you know, I'll look after him and maybe he'll look after me kind of thing. But he didn't call the police or anything. He just fed him and sent him on his way. And I'm assuming he fed him some really nice gumbo or some just really authentic New Orleans dish. And it was probably <laughs> delicious. <laughs> okay, we'll go back. Yeah. We'll go back. <laughs> anyway, um... I mean, this restaurant could still be open <laughs> if we leave now. No, so anyway, he, he came back as, like, obviously he did. Like, he, he was out living in the wild or something. Nobody really knows where he was. Uh, he came back, and the next time he stole $170 and took off. Now, $170, I didn't do the math, but, like, that's a huge amount of money back then. It must have been, like, you know, from the, the safe or whatever. So only when he returned the third time did Philip turn him into the police. You know, and uh, he was packed off to prison at Ryford in Florida. Ryford, I think that's how you say it. Rayford, maybe. I'd say he was very scared. Probably, like, imagine being so scared of somebody that 
you're too scared to like call the cops because you're more scared of him like bypassing like you have confidence that he will overcome yeah i suppose yeah he these already methods of protection once, like, yeah yeah actually shit i never even thought of that can you imagine seeing those fucking eyes yeah walking into your restaurant and um, so in december 1950 his nightmare of a life ended when he hanged himself with a bed sheet it was suicide but again with all these conspiracy theories they reckon it was a cover-up I don't know what they were trying to cover up. This dude had mental illness. He had been untreated for years and yeah. years and years. By now, it's 1950. Mm-hmm. So, he, he, what, this is 17 years after the, the murders? Yeah. Untreated in, like, some hellhole prison. He killed himself. Yeah, I think so, you too. You know, he was just a, he'd already killed all his family. It, I mean, you, if, if he's not... If they don't know shit worth a shit about mental health back in the day... Yeah. His health is steadily declining, mixed mixed with like the after effects of prolonged use of um well drinking moonshine. Drinking something. fucking moonshine. Yeah. First of all, you don't know what the fuck was in that weed he was smoking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So So more than likely he he fucking killed himself. Yeah. Um but one thing that is super random and we probably will get back into at a later stage around the time when the murders did happen there did just so happen to be another axe wielding serial killer in the tampa bay area so you know are you fucking kidding me no uh, i think the axe was just like the go-to back then maybe bullets cost a little too much i don't know but the axe was like a serious old school oh this will do the job cuts wood yeah. Why not? You know. Mm-hmm. Um. Hmm. So yeah, that's a, that's a Victor Licata. Hmm. I was so confident that he had killed his parents until you said that last thing. See, this is what the conspiracy theorists were doing to me. But now it, it had been like six years since this dude had struck, and like I know for a fact that there was also an axe killer in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure what years that were. Like, yeah. there, there's been so many axe killers you know and i don't know what evidence they could provide in the 20s and 30s to say that they were linked and not just a series of random axe killings unfortunately yes yeah i'm not gonna get into that here's a conspiracy about that conspiracy i have a conspiracy (laughs) that someone just threw that in because they knew there was there's a whole bunch of axe killers everywhere (laughs) so prove me wrong that there wasn't yeah exactly it was the kkk run mafia and you know, they were all in coalition with the government to, Jerks. to yeah, I don't know. But batshit crazy story anyway. Uh well look well worth looking into. And as well, go check out the that girl out of the past on YouTube. She did a very good video on it and um Yeah. She has a lot of other subjects and we'll probably be using her again as reference or for our research and stuff. Cool. Good story, man. Thanks, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Very good fucking story. Man, that's some good tea. Yep. Alright. So, I suppose it's my turn. Yeah, lay it on me, sister. Okay. Oh, uh, before we start, remember when I was telling you that I have a deodorant? And it's... And 
Well, I actually didn't start off that way. I was like, hey, what does driftwood smell like? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, because... And then you told me... Yeah, like rotted wood that just shows up on the beach. Yeah. And I was like, that's fucking bank. weird. Because this new deodorant I have, it's driftwood smell. Yeah. Like, it's scented... I mean, I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> but... Here, look, smell it. I brought it. So you can smell it. Now, I don't think that's what driftwood smells like. No, that's... Like. That's just downright delicious. Yeah. I have it all over my nose ring now. That's going to burn. Um, it's all natural, so <laughs> you're good. Okay. Well, I'm glad we cleared that up. All right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> all right. Next time. That's, a, <laughs> that's us. We're done now. <laughs> all right. So my story is a little more local. Um, it's... It's a story about uh, the Driscoll Hotel on 6th Street in Austin, Texas. What? what? Yeah. Okay. So, the hotel was commissioned and paid by its namesake, Jesse Driscoll. Colonel Jesse Driscoll. Jesse was, or I'll just call him Driscoll because, I mean, I don't know the guy. Why am I calling him Jesse? <laughs> right? Uh, Driscoll, First name basis. Yeah. Right? Driscoll was a successful cattle baron who had moved to Texas from Missouri um, for the sole purpose of making money. He was an entrepreneur. He was self-made. He was a self-made beef baron. <laughs> <laughs> it is I, the, the beef, beef baron. baron. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you like that? Yeah. <laughs> Shit, all I've ever dreamed of being <laughs> a beef baron. So he started to make like serious money when he was selling his cattle to the Confederate Army during the Civil War. It, did he call it beef books? Beef books? Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> beef Baron. I built this business on beef books. Oh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> After the Civil War, Je why do I keep calling him Jesse? Driscoll was one of the richest men in Texas. So... He decided to build a hotel, naturally. Fuck it. For $400,000. In what year? This was in 1886. Okay, so 400000 in 1885 is worth $10.68 today. Damn. That's a huge ton of money. Yeah, so like he had that much money to just fuck off and make a hotel, you know? So, I mean... It being like, I guess, a then millionaire had its good things and its bad things, right? Pros and cons of being the beef baron, the beef baron of <laughs> Texas. You'll find out why. Colonel Jesse Driscoll opened the Grand Hotel in 1886. Driscoll was a huge gambler. He soon lost the property oh. in a poker game. Ah. Only two years later, to Jim Doc Day. Doc is his... This is the most cowboy story Isn't I've it? ever heard. <laughs> I damn lost the hotel. I bet you everything I own, son. <laughs> Lay them cards on the table, Doc. Doc so. became its second owner, and he was coincidentally also his brother-in-law. Oh. What a dick. What a sack of shit. Who yeah. let him bet the hotel? I don't know. I mean, to be fair, they're both—they both seem like pieces of shit. Yeah. 
I mean, like, we play for chips, and I get upset when I start winning because I feel bad because the other people don't have chips. <laughs> I'm not going to take your fucking hotel off you. Yeah. So, um, after he lost his hotel, um, all he was really left with was an insane amount of death because he was a compulsive gambler. Mm. So, you know, the cons of being a millionaire is you lose it all if you're a compulsive gambler. Yeah. Uh, anyways... I think that's more the cons of being a compulsive gambler. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's all about perspective. <laughs> Anyways, um, Driscoll passed away in 1890, so shortly after uh, he lost his uh, his hotel. And some say that his restless spirit still wanders the halls of his lost hotel to this day. If you happen to catch a whiff of cigar smoke, it might be the old colonel himself. He is said to be especially fond of appearing to women. Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so we have a story about um, seeing the ghost of Colonel Driscoll. Um, I got this off Monica, Monica Balliard, author of The True Haunted Tales of the Driscoll Hotel. And she says, <laughs> One of my favorite stories is one of the few sightings we've had of Colonel Driscoll. One of his favorite rooms in the Driscoll overlooks 6th Street in Brazos. And there was a consultant in town who woke up one night to see a gentleman gentleman standing in his room looking out of the window about 3 o'clock in the morning puffing on a cigar. He sat up in bed and said, Hey fella, what the hell are you doing in my room? He said the guy looked at him and gave him this look, like, your room? But he didn't say anything. The consultant leaned over and snapped on the light by the bed. And when the light came on, there was no one standing by the window. But the curtains were still swaying, and there was a cloud of cigar smoke in the air. That's spooky. I've always wondered, like, what the fuck do you do when you wake up and you just see somebody that you don't know in your room? Like, alive or dead. Like, because you're not going to think, ghost, straight away. You know yeah. what I mean? I'm like, who the fuck is this dude? Kay. But then, yeah, the, the lingering cigar smoke just kind of yeah. tops the bill, yeah. It's a nice touch, Colonel Driscoll. Yeah. Well done, Beef Baron. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On the fifth floor of the Driscoll, you'll find a painting that's supposed to be haunted. It's a modern replication by Richard King of an older painting by Charles Trevor Garland. The original painting was titled Love Letters. It shows a little girl holding a bouquet of flowers in one hand and a letter in the other. I've seen this picture. It's not creepy. It just It's just a regular ass painting. Okay. Yeah. In 1887, the four-year-old daughter of the U.S. Senator Temple Leah Houston died in a terrible accident at the hotel. Samantha Houston was running after a ball that had rolled down the Driscoll staircase. The girl tripped and fell to her death. Out of this tragedy, the legend grew that Samantha Houston's ghost haunts the painting of the little girl. Hmm. It's said that some, some visitors claimed to have stared at the little girl in the painting and seen her expression change. 
Also, the light by her painting will turn on and off on its own. Others report feeling ill when looking at the painting or a strange sensation of being levitated. It should be noted that skeptics say the real history doesn't jive with the haunting stories. The girl depicted in the painting isn't Samantha Houston herself, and the painting is a modern version of the older Garland work, two facts that some would say seriously detract from any verification to the haunting claims. Now, I have opinions about that. <laughs> okay? Oh, really now? Yes. Look, if I hear bouncy balls and a little girl playing and laughing and I get scared, don't fucking tell me that it couldn't be possible because a painting on the wall is a copy. If a little girl did in fact die suddenly, it is possible that she doesn't know she's dead or doesn't know how to move on. Yeah. Painting or no painting. Also, anything can get a spiritual attachment. Mirrors, dressers, chairs. What's your explanation then? This chair can be haunted. This chair can't be haunted because it's not the first chair ever made in the world. You see how silly <laughs> that explanation is? Yeah, and I mean, I was thinking, um, oh, like maybe they replaced the painting. Mm. But I think if this little girl is going to hang around and haunt the place, she's going to do whatever the fuck she feels like. And if that's what she wants to do, that's what she's doing. Yeah, do, that's you know? what I mean. Like, yeah. I'm not going to go in and tell the little girl, hey, <laughs> this isn't even the real painting. Yeah, like what the fuck? Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> ah, skeptics. All right. In the early 1990s, yeah, this is very, like, recent, a distraught bride, who supposedly her name is Tara, checked into room 329 of the Driscoll. So she was, like, ready to get freaking married, you know, ready to go. Yeah. And then her fiancé just calls off their wedding. So the woman decided to blow over $40,000 on a shopping spree. Nice. And culinary free-for-all on her second day of mourning. On the third, she lined up all her purchases next to her bed, pulled out a gun, and blew her head off. She used a pillow to muffle the sound of the round. Wow. Didn't see that coming, did you? No. <laughs> it, like, it kind of sounds like just one of those quirky 90s, like, uh, I guess, like, chick flicks. Yeah. Until she shoots herself in the head yeah that's like pretty woman gone bad yeah that's what i was yeah. thinking pretty woman i haven't seen but and this is probably a random question do you think all that new stuff got covered in blood uh i i want to say like, depending on how she was where she was standing yeah that's what, like, because you think if she, she shot care? herself yeah if she put the pillow next to her head and the gun was on the other side and oh, say her stuff were over here. Oh, yeah. You know? It's but if she did it... The I th other way. <laughs> exactly. But I think I think it it's very likely because if she decided to make her final display as such of just lining her purchases that way, mm -hmm. then I, I think she might have purposely placed herself in the way of all that stuff she bought and sprayed it all with her own blood. That is a shame. I'd say those, like, cleaners and stuff. Like, motherfucker. Would you wear, and I'm talking like a really nice pair of, let's say like platform pumas. For me, it would be like a pair of Jordans or something. They were clean. They looked brand new. They, they were brand new. They'd never been used. But you knew that somebody had just like toothbrush cleaned bits of brain and skull off them. 
I honestly don't know. I don't think I could resist them. I'd be like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> they look brand new. <laughs> I mean, shit. <laughs> but yeah, no, like I couldn't. I can't. I, I think if I were to give you an answer, I'd be lying because I wouldn't know either way. I would definitely be freaked out to like wake up in the night and just see the shoes regular. Like, oh, look, there's my lovely Jordan. But then there's like a ghost coming out of the shoes. You know what I mean? Like they're just standing there yeah. in their shoes. Yeah, I mean, I, you know what, I, I probably wouldn't because, like I had mentioned before, like, attachments can be on anything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. Might be disrespectful. Well, I don't know about that, but I was more thinking about, like, getting self-preservation. Getting your shoes. Yeah, no, I was just thinking about <laughs> self-preservation where, like, I'm not trying to get haunted because some fucking shoes, you know? Well... To each their own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, to this day, guests swear that they see her ghost towing bags up and down the halls of the hotel. Still having a grand old time. You know, I'm picturing her in, uh, remember Marge Simpson bought that like pink, was it like meant to be Chanel suit? Oh, and she just kept like DIYing it to yeah, make it look different. but like with the shoulder pads, like super like late 80s, 90s. You go, girl. You do you, boo-boo. Yeah, good for you. All right, and one random story, uh, well, second to last. Uh, room 525 is rumored to be the most haunted room in the ho- entire hotel. It's believed that two young women who were in the hotel for their honeymoon committed suicide in the room 20 years apart from each other. Um, not much detail about the two ladies um, that I could find, so I don't know how true this rumor is, but I did read that this room was shut off because they were renovating the hotel. And we all know what happens when you renovate haunted places. Kicks up dust. Yeah. Ghost dust. Ghost dust. Okay, so let's see. And there's another haunt by a Mrs. Bridges, a hotel employee who allegedly worked the front desk for several years in the early 1900s. As any good hospitality employee knows, dedication and consistency are essential to the job. Hmm. <laughs> And Mrs. Bridges apparently took her work at the Driscoll so seriously that visitors still sometimes catch a glimpse of her walking from the vault out into the middle of the lobby. The sight of the old front desk, dressed in a Victorian-style dress. Her appearance is apparently often marked by the smell of roses because she used to fuss over the flower arrangements and their placements throughout the hotel. Wow. Yeah. That's one of those like friendly ghosts so like you know, Yeah, it's, it's just, just like she's it's just a memory. Oh. Etched in time. That's all you are. You're just a memory. <laughs> but of all the things like I would gladly smell like flowers in the afterlife rather than driftwood. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so the most famous ghost duet to haunt the hotel is the power couple of Lady Bird and LBJ. LBJ. Lyndon B. Johnson. Oh, the president? Yeah. Okay. Lady Bird's his wife. Lady Bird? Is that mm-hmm. her actual name? No, that was her nickname, but literally everyone called her that. Oh. Everyone called her that. Lady Bird. Okay. Oh. Fun fact, that's Hank Hill's dog's name. Lady Bird. Lady Bird. Mm-hmm. The pair had their first date in 1934 in the Driscoll's dining room. For years, they flocked to the place to not only relive their glory days... But for special occasions. Oh. <sighs> Whatever. <laughs> Presidential hanky-panky. 
The Driscoll became Lyndon Johnson's favorite place when he visited uh, Austin, so much that he watched the results of the 1964 presidential elections from the presidential suite. Some say you can still see LBJ roaming the halls and Lady Bird Johnson in the mirrors. That's like, I wouldn't know who they were. Like, if, if they didn't look ghostly, I think they were just, I'm assuming they look old, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's nice. Yeah. It's good to know. All right. Um, so my last ghost story about the Driscoll is one, and this was my favorite, one that I found on TripAdvisor. Oh, yes. Ghost reviews. It's, <laughs> it's a doozy. My wife and I stayed in one of the suites in the 1886 wing, where the fifth floor was supposed to be one of the most haunted in Austin, according to a ghost tour we took. I was made a believer when I checked out. Hmm. During checkout, I found out that there must have been a ghost. A ghost? A ghost. <laughs> who appeared to have dined in the Driscoll restaurant and charged it all to our room for over $400 <laughs> for the meal. Those pesky ghosts. Coincidentally, my wife and I also ate at the Driscoll that very same night with a separate bill with a separate receipt. When I asked reception about it, they seemed annoyed that I was disputing a charge for one of the two meals eaten at that very night at the Driscoll. All right. <laughs> All right. So um, later on, later on, he said, uh, you know, he, he goes on to say, um, you know, he tried to dispute it after mm, he left. I'm and, sure he went into great detail. He oh, yeah. Funny. I mean, like this thing reads like a fucking essay. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. So, um, he says, the Driscoll is haunted. Said, since I did not receive an email from the Driscoll staff who had said he would email me the final corrected statement. So I must have been talking to one of the Driscoll ghosts. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Things at the Driscoll seem to disappear. $400 dinner receipts, adjusted bills, emails, <laughs> and social grace and hos hotel hospitality from the Driscoll staff. You know, I bet this guy, I bet this guy watches the Big Bang Theory. Oh, and yeah. as he was typing it, he was like, bazinga. Yeah. Douchebag. So management <laughs> responded. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Yeah, it was a fucking ghost. That's it. Oh, my fucking God. <laughs> like, okay, okay. So this is the, yeah. Just. Okay. Mm -hmm, yeah. Manager response. Thank you for your feedback. I apologize that a service error resulted and the erroneous posting and our desk associate's response was far less than the hotel's customary legendary service. I'm aware that the grill general manager did contact you and that your account was credited for the charges. The Driscoll Hotel has been delivering elite service for over 125 years and we certainly fell short during your stay. I regret that your experience seemed to have a supernatural element to it. <laughs> but relieved that it was indeed a miscue by our associate. I hope you'll consider returning to the Driscoll despite your last experience. If I was a manager, <laughs> I'd be like, shove your ghost up your ass. To be fair, that's like 
the most sass that you can give yeah if yeah, you want to yeah. keep up your professional veneer maybe this is why i'm not a manager yeah that's why i fucking i'm, a I'm not a manager anymore uh, all right so um but yeah so i mean the driscoll was threatened with demolition in 1969 but a non-profit raised nine hundred thousand dollars and saved it currently it's a hyatt hotel Wow. Yeah, just a fun little fact. It just if you wanted to go visit it, you can. Like yeah, it's still, it's still like in business. Yeah. Right on. Mm-hmm. That's what we like. We like haunted hotels and spooky shit. But no, that's a really interesting story. Um, uh, when I was in Austin, I'd seen it in person, and it's it sticks out like a sore thumb. So, like in my early twenties, we went to <clears throat> we went to Austin. Mm-hmm. And the place to go is 6th Street because that's where all the bars are. Right, right. They shut down the whole street. Not, well, I guess not the entirety of the street, but the majority of the street where all the bars are. Uh, it's much like Louisiana where... It's, you can just walk around. Like, yeah. It's, okay. It's, mm-hmm, it's a pedestrian-only area. And when we were walking down there, um, you just see, you know, you just see, like, bars with outdoor patios and, you know, yeah, loud music. Spot, like. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, towards the end, you see this enormous fucking hotel that just sticks out like a sore thumb that it doesn't belong there. Yeah. Amongst, like, modern things, you know? Because it's full of ghosts. It's it's well lit. It's (laughs) gorgeous. It's so pretty. I was just like, man, like, one of these days when I have money, I'm going (laughs) to stay there. (laughs) Well, hopefully we'll be able to go there and do our own little investigation, maybe, and record from there. We got our first listener email this week. Okay, so we're going to try and play it like this. Hopefully it works out. So this is Carl from Dublin. Carl. Hey, man. I just wanted to send you a quick voice message on my own spooky experience. So years ago when I was a kid, I can't remember what age it was, but my parents were out and my brother was minding me. He was downstairs in the sitting room watching Saving Private Ryan. As you do. And the mirror above the mantelpiece, above the fireplace that's been there for years and years and years, uh, fell off the, the, the wall and it smashed into pieces uh, onto the middle of the sitting room floor. And as it fell off the wall, it knocked off all the statues, all the ornaments and stuff that were on the mantelpiece. One of the ornaments was... Uh, little tiny statue of a married couple um, on their wedding day, the groom holding the bride. Uh, their two heads came clean off. Um, Sorry, I don't them back on. They still have the little statue and you can still see a little bit of super glue on it. Um, they found out the following day from the next door neighbours that the man who used to live in the house died that night. Uh, and coincidentally his name was Ryan, his second name was Ryan I don't know if it's anything to do with Stephen watching Saving Private Ryan um, but there there may be some sort of connection, I just thought it was a funny little strange story, uh, my mum's always telling me she's told it about 20 times to me uh, after a few glasses of wine, uh, <laughs> as if I never heard it before, uh, but I was in the house that night anyway, uh, but if you want more info, give a shout Right on, um I mean, I, I genuinely thought he was going to say that the dude who used to live there 
got decapitated the night before. <laughs> but that is pretty interesting. Like, the mirror's been sitting there for your whole fucking life, and then all of a sudden... And that's the only thing that it breaks. Yeah. That's interesting. And if his name is Ryan, I don't know if that has anything to do with the movie or not, but it's an awful good coincidence or whatever. Big coincidence, rather. So, yeah, thanks for sending that in. Yeah, thanks, Carl. Yeah. Carl. Carl. Uh, I forgot to cite my sources um, for my stories. Uh, AustinHost.com and The Austin Chronicle. Right on. I'll put that back in at the end of the thing. Cool. Uh, yeah, so I guess that's it for this week. But what I will say is that was our first, and so far, uh, we have a few more listener stories. We're just going to try and add them on like this at the end of each episode. So we have, you know, one or two. Or if our topics happen to be short and we have longer stories, we'll definitely throw them in, uh, throw more in. But yeah, so please feel free to send us. Um, we are now on Twitter and Instagram, uh, Weekly Creep. Or if you feel like sending us a slightly longer one, like send us an email at weeklycreep at gmail.com. Any story, long, short, whatever. Doesn't have to be necessarily spooky, just weird, creepy. I don't want to hear about like your toe cheese or anything like that, but if you have like a strange uncle that had to go away for a few years. But if your toe cheese is haunted. If your toes are talking to you. Yeah. Maybe get help, but we want to hear that story. Yeah, we do. Alright, so I guess that's it from us. So, we'll see you next week. Alright, bye. Bye.